But if you have God's Word, let's turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I want to read verses 1 to verse 14 will be our text for this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 to 14. And may God plant His eternal Word into our souls. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what He has bent? In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Will you all bow with me in a word of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight in desperate need of your wisdom and your discernment. The world around us is full of confusion and chaos. And we are often uncertain of what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. We ask that you would grant us a spirit of discernment by looking at your word that we might see clearly and live wisely. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, time to time, we need a dose of a healthy reality check. We need to realign our perspective with God's. We do not see our lives clearly and we make poor decisions because we often are using the wrong standard. We often rely too much on our own understanding, on our own emotions, on our feelings, and not enough on God's Word. So what I want to do is I want to speak to you tonight from my favorite book in the Old Testament with the hopes of reacclimating yourselves with the divine perspective on life. And in this book, Solomon, the author, poses many difficult questions. He asked difficult questions that people are still uh, facing today. Questions like, what is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? Well, chapter 6 ends with a difficult question to reflect on. I want you to look at the end of chapter 6, verse 12. And notice the question that Solomon asked, For who knows... 
what is good for man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life. He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Now, what a great question that each one of us needs to seek an answer to. What is good for me in my life? Who defines what is good for me and what is good? Now, when Solomon asked, for who knows what is good for for man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life, he's going to answer that question in chapter 7. That word good is used by Solomon to bridge the gap between the first half of Ecclesiastes to the second half of the book. In, In fact, every time you see that phrase, better than, appear in chapter 7, there's a lot of them, it's literally more good than. And so starting from chapter 7 to the end of the book, Solomon is going to give us counsel that there is a better way to live this life. That wisdom from above is better than foolishness. That righteousness is better than wickedness. The man has been so far describing life under the sun and how vain and how depressing and how frustrating life can be without God in one's life. He has, on rare occasions, directed his audience to look at life beyond the sun. But a majority of the first half of the book, he has been searching for answers for the purpose of life, of living in this life. And whichever path he took, he always ended up on a dead end street called vanity. But from chapter 7, something begins to come into his focus. He looks at the same events that frustrated him before with a different lens. And tells us that in this chapter that there is a better way to live. And today, friends, we're faced with the same kind of choices. And there's always choices to make in life. There is a wise way. And there is a foolish way. And it's not always cut and dry when it comes to the choices that we need to make. And Solomon will tell us today that there are bad choices and good choices. Another way to say it is that you can either either travel through life First class or no class? Have you guys ever noticed when you board a plane, the people in first class always board first, right? There are only few in that section, but they have all the legroom, right? They're already eating, sipping on some champagne. They have seats that recline, and then you make your way to your section, and you got to fight your way to find your seat, and you sit down next to someone who's probably kind of uncomfortable to sit next to you, and you got to sit down. you got a seat that doesn't even recline. Solomon is saying you got to choose the better way, right? Choose the way that leads to life. God is giving you that choice. What are you going to choose? I want to choose first class, don't you? Yeah. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount told, told us that there's only two choices in life. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter it, but the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it so we're not just talking about a choice of what color skittle i should choose eternity is at stake in the choices we make in life now you could tell in talking about choosing the wise way over the foolish way solomon he's going to keep up with his familiar writing style of giving us proverbs there are proverbs in chapter seven instead of continuing his narrative style that he has used thus far he turns to the more proverbial style, the short, pithy, 
simple sounding statements that offer insights in principles on handling life. He writes Proverbs because he knows how forgetful we are. He knows the moment that we leave from this place, how the noise of this world can drown out the voice of biblical wisdom. And so he writes in Proverbs so that these truths will stick into your mind. And what memorable and graphic Proverbs are set before us. Now, there's a lot of Proverbs here, and it might sound like it's random, but I want to group these series of Proverbs into four categories and really four factors that we need to look at in, in order to live a better life and to answer the question, what is good for man? And the first thing that Solomon does is that he invites us to a funeral. In fact, he does more than invite you to a funeral. He exhorts us to attend your own funeral. And that's the first factor. He says to look at your death. Now Solomon presents a most difficult concept and truth. He says, he, he says, look at your own death. Remember, he is asking the question, what is good for man? What is good for us? He says in verse 1, a good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. That's a startling statement. Now, we can certainly understand that a good name is better than precious ointment. A good ointment is a good perfume, which has an ability to attract others. You guys ever watch those uh, commercials of young men usually buying expensive cologne or deodorant because they saw something on TV, and when you spray a little perfume on you, people of the opposite sex are supposed to flock to you, and you have some kind of romantic relationship with you. Now, I'm not sure how well that has worked out for the young men here in terms of attracting ladies, but this proverb says that a good name is truly influential. You see, a good name carries with it influence and character, a reputation. It could either be a good reputation or a bad one, but a good name is preferred over some, over some simply pleasant aroma. Well, that's not only true of people, but it's also true of restaurants as well. You know, all restaurants smell pretty good, right? Well, I think most do. But you hardly go by the smell, right? You choose the restaurant by the name, by its reputation, by how many stars it got on Yelp, right? Based on how many reviews. That is the same for true for all the products we purchase now. When we choose what is referred to as a name brand product, it's usually because the name that, is, that has come to stand for its quality. Now, you can buy precious ointment, but you see, you cannot buy a good name, a good reputation. No matter how expensive the perfume may be, nothing is more valuable to an individual than the name that we have acquired for ourselves. And the reputation that is talked about here is when a person dies. So Solomon says, take a look at your own death and ask, what will your re reputation be? What will you be remembered for? Will it be remember for something that we did for ourselves? Or we will, will we leave the impression that we gave ourselves to the service to the Lord? You see, Solomon is saying, better to have a good reputation at one's death than smelling good at one's coffin. And then Solomon says, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. How is it that the day of death is better than the day of, of our birth? Now, we Americans, we celebrate birthdays. 
but we mourn death days. And we don't like to go there. We want to have our fun. We want to go to parties. We don't want to ponder on the deep things in life. But here is why your death is better than your birthday. Let me lay out a couple of reasons. For the believer, death is the best day. Because it marks the end of all the suffering and evil in this life. The Apostle Paul expressed something similar in his letter to the Philippians. I want you to turn to Philippians 1.22. Keep your fingers in Ecclesiastes 7. And in comparing life with death, Paul find it hard to decide which was better. And so in Philippians 1.22, he says, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, he said. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. And so Paul and Solomon is saying something very similar. You know, if I had the choice, I'd rather be out of this life and into eternity. I'd rather be with my Lord and my Savior to see His beauty, to dwell in His presence, and to enter into a better world with higher perfection, greater purity, deeper rest, with better company, with a glorious body. And let me tell you, friends, only those who know the Lord in an intimate and personal way can make such a statement. If you do not have Christ, you do not look forward to the day you die. No, you dread the day you die. Before the believer, death is the best day of all. Thomas Boston, a Puritan, he wrote, in the days of his birth, he was born to die. But in the days of his death, he dies to live. The Apostle Paul summed up his thought beautifully for the people of God. He says to die is what? Gain. You know, five months before he died, C.S. Lewis wrote to a woman who feared that her own death was imminent. And this is what Lewis wrote. He says, can you not see death as a friend and deliver? What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace, relax, let go, I will catch you. Do you trust me so little? Of course, this may not be the end, then make it a good rehearsal. Lewis signed the letter, yours and like you, a tired traveler near the journey's end. Every single person in this room is dying. You must make certain of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Be certain that you are trusting in Him alone to save you, not in anyone or anything else, and certainly not in any good works you've done. And know that the day of your death is infinitely better than the day of your birth. But it also teaches us to live soberly. I want you to come back to Ecclesiastes. Why the day of death is better than our day of our birth. There's something else that looking at your death teaches us. Look at verse 2. It says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. He says likewise in verse 4, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now what Solomon is saying is that death teaches us to live soberly, soberly. Now, having been to a number of pillar weddings and birthday parties now, I have seen how pillar folks know to, how to have a good time. 
Because when it's time for the dance floor, I know you guys are having a good time. You know, we make gingerbread making competitions something we look forward to. We have a great time with that. But friends, hear this. Better to go to a funeral than a party, than a wedding. That's what Solomon is saying. The house of mourning refers to the home of the deceased, where the family mourns of the departure of their loved one. Better the funeral than the wedding. You said, what now? Oh yeah, better to take a 30-minute stroll through a graveyard than spending a weekend in Vegas. As Derek Kidner has widely observed, he says at all festive occasions, the general mood is excited and expansive. It is no time for dwelling on life's brevity or on human limitations. We let our fancies and our hopes run high. At the house of mourning, on the other hand, the mood is thoughtful and the facts are plain. And if we shrug them off, it is our fault. We shall have no better chance of facing them. Now, there is a time and a place, as Solomon observed in chapter 3, for festive occasions to enjoy and to laugh in life things that, good, good things that the Lord has given to us. But Solomon says, better to go to a house of mourning. But there is only certain things you can learn when considering death. Now, on my mom's anniversary of her death, I take my family to her burial site. And every time I am there, I learn more about life, more wisdom that I could ever attain than all of the weddings and birthdays that I've been to. I think about the brevity of life. I was reminded of how we live counts. I reflect more clearly the ultimate result of the fall, how because of sin, death entered into the world. I am comforted by the promise and the hope we have as Christians in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The hope of resurrection of Jesus Christ becomes more real to me than ever before. It makes me think about my own death and preparing to die well. It makes me realize that the most important thing for my children is salvation in Christ. I learn more visibly that you leave behind all earthly treasures, but you gain eternal treasures in heaven and because of that to not hold on to earthly possessions too tightly i learned to live righteously in light of eternity you see going to a funeral teaches us those important life lessons solomon explains that death is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart in other words every funeral anticipates our own you see, funerals are a healthy wake-up call. They instill sobriety. Now, this goes against the prevailing attitude of our culture, especially amongst this generation and the, in these times. You see, we would rather live in levity than sobriety. Now, some of you here are so tied to your internet, social media, Instagram, that they say you wake up in the middle of the night just to check your smartphone. That's how bad things are. It's amazing how much triviality is in our lives. From our internet use to our conversations, the places we go, it's so hollow. That's why we need to think about death. Because death teaches us about our own mortality. And this, in turn, teaches us how to really live. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 92, Moses writes, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. One theologian wrote wisely, we cannot apply our hearts unto wisdom as instructed by Moses, 
except we number every day as our possible last day. You see, that's what it's saying. We need to live each day like it is our last. And so try this when you get home and ready to sleep. This is an advice from Jonathan Edwards. Imagine that your bed is your grave. And that when you close your eyes, you have no more to do with this world. And that if you ever see the light of the sun again, you deeply thank God for his mercy for a new day. And you live that new day again as if it were your last. But sandwiched in between the house of mourning in verses 2 and 4 is that sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. Now verse 3 explicitly tells us why a visit to a funeral proves more beneficial. Sadness that shows in the face results in a better heart. A spiritual, healthy heart. And really a better perspective in life. It teaches us a better perspective in life. If you have an NIV, it translates it this way. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The NIV represents the Hebrew better than those translations that use happy or glad. You see, not all sadness is bad. Sometimes sadness will help you to think through some very serious things. You see it, uh, the sorrow that comes from the adversity that can bring us to the right perspective in life. You know, there's a story that comes from the sinking of the Titanic. There was a frightened woman who found her place in a lifeboat that was about to be lowered into the raging North Atlantic. And she suddenly thought of something that she needed. And so she asked permission to return to her stateroom before they cast off. And she was granted three minutes or, or else they would leave without her. And so she ran across the deck that was already slanted at a dangerous angle. She raced through the gambling room with all the money that had rolled to one side ankle deep. And she came to her stateroom and quickly pushed aside her diamond rings and expensive bracelets and necklaces as she reached to the top shelf above her bed and grabbed three small oranges. She quickly found her way back into the lifeboat and got in. Now that seems incredible because 30 minutes earlier, she would not have chosen the crate of oranges over even the smallest of diamonds. But death approached the Titanic and it transformed all values. You see, priceless things have become worthless. And worthless things have become priceless. And so she chose three small oranges over all of her collection of diamonds. You know, we need to go through sadness and difficulties to have a spiritually healthy heart. Death gives you that kind of perspective in life. But you see, fools go the other way. Fools are too busy in the house of pleasure to understand their true nature and fail to understand the true perspective in life. And therefore, being honest with ourselves, most of us attempt to find our rest and comfort in the house of pleasure. But in reality, we are really sleeping the sleep of death. You see, Solomon then is teaching us to look at your own funeral, for it will give you a healthy perspective in life. There is no better example of this than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For moments before he was about to die in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? That my heart is sorrowful even unto death. But as he faced 
with a sorrowful heart. Not only his death, but also the separation from his father, from his eternal father from the beginning. It says in Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross because he realized that what he would gain from that death and from that sorrowful heart would be salvation for the souls of his elect and his bride. Well, I want to continue with Solomon's answering the question, what is good for man during his lifetime? And he says, secondly, look for correction in your life. Look for correction in your life. Look at verse 5. It says, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Now, the rebuke of the wise man has characteristics similar to a funeral. It is hard to experience, but much good comes from it. And if we are going to choose the better way in life, we must look for correction in our lives. But you know, our our human nature doesn't like to get rebuked. We resist when someone tells us we are in the wrong. We are extremely prideful creatures. We don't like to be corrected. We need to see rebukes as something positive in our lives because when we go through life, we are going to make a lot of mistakes. And we need to recognize that along the way, God is going to send you many wise people to correct you and rebuke you. I want you to go to Proverbs 27 for a second with me. Go to Proverbs 22nd, 27, I'm sorry, and look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6. It says, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, the best friend that you have is the friend that will tell you the truth. Now, some of us are not open to that. We don't want anyone telling us that we were wrong. And friend, that is so naive. That is so blind and so unreal. Time to time, we need a rebuke. And you know what? God is the major rebuker. God is the best of friends. And I don't know about you, but whenever I open this book... God rebukes me often. Ever happen to you? But do I close the book and find another book? Do I close the book and turn on the television and find something else less rebuking? No, if you are wise, you're going to say thank you for that. People that rebuke you are more valuable than you know. Sometimes the wise person is a mature brother or sister, doesn't agree with your lifestyle. Sometimes the wise person may be your pastor who tells you some hard things you need to hear. For those in relationships, the wise person is your spouse. Could be your significant other who can see far better than what you can see for yourself. But we find those occasions difficult to hear. You see, our our tendency is to go in the direction of fools. We look for fools to be our companion. We look for people to advise us who are not going to tell us the, the truth we find someone, someone to agree with this. For example, you're about to make some decision in life. You go through your phone and find different people to talk to, and the, the first three or four people you find says, no, no, don't date him. He's no good for you. And by the fifth person, you find someone like you, just like you, a fool. Oh, yeah, 
Oh, he's a nice guy. Oh, he's so cute. Oh, he's so rich. So it's four to one. And you're going with the one. Because you're going with the song of fools. Because we want someone to agree with us. We basically become that which we listen to. And this is interesting. In verse 6, Solomon paints, paints a scathing picture of the laughter of fools. He says, for as the cat crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This too is futility. Now this graphic picture alludes to the act that thorns burn quickly and noisily, but they produce little heat for cooking. In the same way, you see the laughter of fools, the advice from them might have a fine display of sparks. It will be enticing. It will be very appealing. But soon it will be easily put out. The counsel of fools has no value. And so the next time someone in your life rebukes you and tells you of the truth, you need to listen and you need to take it to heart. I remember reading a story on a book on the topic of humility and it, and it reads this way about this man. He says, as I sat with my family at a local breakfast establishment, I noticed a finely dressed man at an adjacent table. His Armani suit, and stiffly pressed shirt coordinated perfectly with a power tie. His wingtip shoes sparkled from a recent shine. Every hair was in place, including his perfectly groomed mustache. And the man sat alone eating a bagel as he prepared for a meeting. And as he reviewed the papers before him, he appeared nervous, glancing frequently at his Rolex watch. It was obvious that he had an important meeting ahead. The man stood up, and I watched as he straightened his tie and prepared to leave. And immediate, immediately I noticed a blog of cream cheese attached to his finely groomed mustache. He was about to go into the world dressed in his finest with cream cheese on his face. I thought of the business meeting he was about to attend. Who would tell him? Should I? What if no one did? Friends, chances are that you're like this finely dressed man, perfectly groomed and confident but with a whole lot of cream cheese on your face. Oh, we all got them. Yeah. We're all blind to them. In our arrogance and pride, we think we see quite well. And we get offended when someone points that about us. We need people around us to rebuke us and to tell us the truth. Now, I want you to see this third category uh, in what is good of, for man, he says, look ahead with patience and humility. Look at verse 7. He gives a warning about the danger of power. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. He warns us in order to warn us of the easier routes in life. Bribery is a temptation to take shortcuts and to get things done quickly. Without looking ahead with patience and humility, bribery can do the upright heart what oppression can do to the wise of heart. So he continues by saying the end of the matter, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Now, how can the end of a matter be better than a beginning? I want you to think of a marathon. The only measure that counts is the finish line. And in life, it often takes considerable time until the wise course is vindicated. And so we need to look ahead 
with patience and humility. And especially in this context of speaking of death and adversity in life, he goes on to say that patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Well, why is this mentioned in the same breath as endings and beginnings? Well, because endings don't come very quickly, right? And we don't have the patience to wait for them. And sometimes we don't see that a bad thing in our lives can turn out well unless we have enough patience to keep waiting on it. And if we wait for it, we might see and we might learn how things turn out well. And so we need patience and humility to wait for things to turn out well. We are people today that desire immediate gratification. We want answers when? Now. And sometimes we need to wait upon the Lord for the answers. And sometimes God doesn't immediately give us the answer so that we would wait upon Him. And if we desire immediate gratification and do not get what we want, Solomon will give us a warning of what will happen to us. He says in verse 9, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. You see, fools are not patient. When things do not go their way in life, they explode with anger. And when anger, ungodly anger, rouses in your heart, well, it is a sure telltale sign that you no longer trust that God is sovereign and that He is good. Because if we trusted God, if we trusted His goodness and control of our lives, we would wait upon Him. But you see, when things do not go our way, our anger explodes because something that is happening is not happening as quickly as it should. And so the underlying truth of all this is our mistrust in God's sovereignty. If you trust that God is good, if you trust that God is sovereign and perfectly control of every molecule in this universe, anger will be the far from exploding in your heart. Rather, there will be a constant staying on Him and trusting in Him. Oh, far better that we patiently and humbly wait for God to work out His plan than for us to get angry and demand our own way. And with that, we can understand why He says in verse 10 then, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Because you see, when we talk like this, oh, the good old days. Oh, if I could only go back. You know, if I could only go back before this and that. When we talk like this, we express our dissatisfaction with the present. Rather than looking forward, you see, fools always seem to be looking backward. The fool reaches for a return to the past where things were a lot comfortable and better than they are in the present. Especially when life is difficult and we are impatient for change. It is easy to long for the quote-unquote good old days when things were better. Why get hung up on the past and miss out what God is doing at the present moment? This is a lesson that we all need to learn. To look ahead with patience and humility and confidence in God. We need to learn to wait for God to work out His plan believing that the best is yet to come. Rather than arrogantly assuming that we know best, we should humbly submit to God and wait for Him 
to work things out. Now, this applies to all our own sanctification in the areas of life that we still need to grow. It applies in our careers and in our jobs. It applies to our marriages. It applies to our parenting. It applies to any area of life where you can think what we wish to be best, that we, we wish that God would be in a hurry to do something in my life, when in fact He wants us to hurry up and to wait on Him. The reformer Martin Luther says it well. He says, let, it, let us therefore be content with the things that are present and commit ourselves into the hand of God who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. Now the fourth category of things he wants to answer on what is good for man, he tells us to look upward. Look upward. Starting from verse 10 on to verse 12, the catch word is wisdom. In verse 11, Solomon tells us that wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Now we know this to be true when we look at the prodigal son, right? He was a fool who squandered his inheritance. The wise will not waste their inheritance, but will use it well. In verse 12, Solomon tells us that wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. The man who is wise knows how to protect himself with wealth. It gives the wise the means to handle life's complications. However, both money and wisdom provides only a temporary protection. When it comes to the present life, it pays no dividends in the grave. That is why Solomon tells us we need to look upward. Look at verse 13. He says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? Solomon calls upon his readers to think about their present conditions in light of eternity. Now, after listing some of the better ways in life, Solomon turns our attention and he says, look upward. Our attention must be Godward. In other words, God has an overarching purpose in this life. God does whatever He wills. This is His universe and He runs the way that He will wants to run it. And you and I can never change it. Why would you want to beat your head against a stone wall? You'd be a fool to do that. You see, wisdom helps us to recognize it, that this is God's will, this is God's purpose, and that when I align myself with that purpose, then I will be a blessed and happy person. And here's a prayer that was written long ago that reflects the attitude of verse 13, to look upward to a sovereign God. Oh God, give us serenity to accept what cannot be changed, courage to change what should be changed, and wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. What a good prayer that is. He goes on in verse 14. He says, recognize that in the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other. You know, Job's wife once said, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, you can fault her all you want, but she lost all of her kids, all of her wealth. Just curse God, Job. Job turned to her and said, honey, God has blessed us. 
and God also gives adversity, we have to learn to accept them both. Oh, I like what an unknown pope has written. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, with mighty blows converts him into trial, shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, when he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. See, God balances our lives by giving us enough blessings of prosperity to keep us happy and enough burdens to keep us humble. If we were to have all the blessings of prosperity in our hands, we would fall right over. But the tender love of our Lord, you see, sends us adversity and burdens on our back to help keep us steady, to help us yield and thrust ourselves into His care and to His comfort. Why does God design our lives to be this way? Well, the answer is simple. To keep us from thinking that we know it all and have it all and that we can manage life all by ourselves. It tells us at the very end of verse 14, you see, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. You see, God wants us to look upward. The more you think you can handle life on your own and run it without God, he's going to keep messing things up for you to get your attention that you need him and that you need to trust in him. So what is good for mankind? The answer is perhaps not what you would have guessed. They're actually very opposite to what we think as good. We consider good being physically healthy. Fame or fortune and comfort as good things, while adversity and death as bad things. But God wants us to see more deeply to see that God has made the one as well as the other in order to understand that when all things are good, that comes from the hand of God. Now we began today's sermon with a choice from Jesus, right? First class or no class. You can en either enter the broad way that leads to destruction, and that's where most people in this world seem to be heading. Or you can walk through the less traveled path, the better way that leads to life. And now Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, as you can recall, he compares the people who were listening to him to houses. Some would build their houses on sand, some would build their houses on rocks. And he tells them that those who hear him and do not act upon what they heard are like houses which are built on sand. They are fools. But those who hear him and act upon it are like houses that built on a rock. And they prove to be wise. Now since they all hear the same thing, the difference is not in the hearing, but in the acting. Therefore, when the storm comes, 
when one's house falls and the other stands, it stands for one simple reason. The response. So how will you respond to the message tonight? Is your house on a rock or is it on a sand? Well, depending on that answer, you'll have the answer for your future. Are you ready to face the living God? Hebrews 9, 27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Death does not mean the end of your life. It means the beginning of your life eternal. Either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Therefore, understanding that death and judgment is awaiting all of us, Paul declares in his sermon to the men of Athens, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men everywhere and all people should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So repent and believe in Jesus for His saving work on the cross and resurrection and you will build your house on the rock and you will choose the better way to life. Now, no matter how much time you have left in this world, be it 50 years or 50 days, be certain that the foundation of your life must be on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you are the source of all wisdom and understanding. You have ordained everything in this world. You know the end from the beginning and nothing is hidden from your sight. We confess, O oh Lord, how often, how too often we rely on our own understanding and we wander away from your truth. We confess that our discontentment in life, our depression, and our despair comes from our short-sightedness and looking at things in our life according to our limited and skewed perspective. Oh, teach us your ways, O oh Lord. Teach us to number our days that we may acquire a heart of wisdom. We pray that you would give us a teachable spirit, that we may submit to your authority and to trust that your ways are higher than our ways. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is the source of all wisdom. Amen.